I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're from the Spy Hards Movie Podcast. That's right. And you are listening to Pods Like Us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. And welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv. And this time I am joined by the president of Meeting House Productions, who have produced over 600 hours of content. And can't you tell that I've looked on IMDb (laughs) for TV and other distributors such as MTV, Food Network, Discovery and Sky Television as well as many others, and their company is behind shows such as The Osbournes Want to Believe. My guest this time is Jason Celo from the podcast Fullcast. Which podcast and... is it again, Marv? Pardon? <laughs> Which podcast is it again? Fullcast and Crew. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. <laughs> You know, Marv, when you were, people don't know that Marv records like 15 of these in an afternoon. So if you were Marv, you would forget what podcast you're talking about too. I want everyone to understand that. (laughs) Yes, I do them all in the block. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Marv, for having me. As I joked with you prior to this uh, call, I think you're one of the hardest listening podcast fans I've ever encountered. And um, you really do your part to support the medium in a way that is really meaningful to people who uh, do what we do and try to make a podcast that's interesting to anyone, really. So I'm very thankful for all of your efforts and for having me on. It's very enjoyable to just not have to do anything except respond to questions. I never get to do that. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm I'm just trying to introduce people and um, to use an old uh, 60s term, I'm trying to turn them on to something new. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for speaking with me today, by the way. Of course. My pleasure. So how were you first introduced to the world of podcasts? Well, for us, it came about kind of, um, as you noted, we are a production company based in New York City in the States. And, you know, we produce content for television networks and streamers and for the internet. And at the time, a couple of years ago, it really started because uh, 
you know, podcasting was becoming a big business, I'll say, even though I think only the top, you know, 1% of podcasts probably generate any income whatsoever. But it became apparent that this was something that, you know, as a production company, we should learn how to do. We should learn the, the, the do's and the don'ts of the medium because it may become relevant to either a series that we're producing. Uh, but also, I think for me, you know, it kind of rapidly became just an outlet for something that we don't get to do at work a lot you know, which is kind of talking or producing something that we want to talk or produce. You know, a lot of times in our business, you have to go to networks with your hat in your hand and you have to pitch them a series or a television show or an idea. And you have to hope that they like it enough to help you bring it to reality. Whereas, you know, with podcasting, there really is no barrier to entry other than a learning curve uh, and some technology dependent on how, how well you want things to sound. And so it first started as kind of an extension of our production company. And for really the first year of the pod, uh, my co-host, uh, Chris Kapiniak, really did all of the production work and all of the heavy lifting in terms of the technical side of recording it and editing it. And then, of course, in my position as president of the company, you know, I get to be blissfully unaware of how much time and effort that really was taking Chris. <laughs> and, and ultimately that just became too much for him uh, to do in addition to his regular job duties at the company and his other career as an actor and performer. Uh, and so when he, you know, stopped doing the podcast, I was kind of faced with that moment of, okay, well, am I going to figure out how to do this? And Chris was very generous and sort of patiently answering all of my stupid questions about how to use audacity and how to edit and do all of these things. And so really in the second life of the show, it's become a hands-on creative outlet for me at a time in my kind of professional life when I don't really do that so much anymore. You know, I manage the company that produces things, but this is something that, you know, weekly or whenever I can uh, get motivated to do an episode it gives me an opportunity to make something from the ground up. And I really unexpectedly have come to really appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm um, bringing this in a bit sooner than intended really, mm -hmm. but it's changed shape technically since uh, Chris left. It's mm -hmm. become, it's become a completely different thing altogether, such as um, recently, I really enjoyed that episode where you uh, met up with those two friends that you'd had from years mm. back where you you were reminiscing about old mm -hmm. times when you were you, you all lived together or shared shared a, a, yes. a, a place together and that yeah. it's it's fascinating it's turned into a program where sometimes it's a bit more about what you remember and those mm -hmm. things, such as when you're going on about the Rockford Files and mm -hmm. Colombo, they are yeah. important in your background and made you the person that you are. And you can yeah. see that through the shows that you're making about these yes. uh, subjects. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, in some ways, you know, it's a progression, right? So you do a bunch of episodes and eventually, you know, it takes so much time to really put together an episode and to do the research on an episode that... I think inevitably, if you're like me, who essentially was 
you know, the kid who was in the last row in the classroom and was kind of only interested in what he was interested in, then I'm only going to be gravitated towards episodes that interest me. And the podcast sort of takes on a different proportion when you think about kind of what you want to talk about and what moves you. And I think I've found certainly in the pandemic time that, you know, it's great to use it as a vehicle just to kind of put on the record, for example, that version of how important Chris and Roy, the two people you just referenced in our Live at Pompeii episode were to my life. And to be able to to realize, and I only realized it, you know, like, I mean, I've realized how important they were, but I only realized that it had a connection to a specific movie very, very recently before asking them if they wanted to participate and do the episode. And once I kind of remembered that, oh yeah, like the reason we went to Roy's house that afternoon, we were 15 years old in 1984, was to watch Pink Floyd's concert documentary live at Pompeii. And with that connection, it then became an opportunity to have a conversation with them about memory and about, like I said, putting on the record, you know, that this was a special time in our teenage life. And I didn't really care at the time or expect that anyone else would particularly respond or appreciate to it. I just thought I'm doing this for us and for me and for these two guys. And if they like it and if they feel that it's worthwhile and that it kind of accurately captures a version of that history, because I think it's also interesting that I wouldn't say it's the truth of that time. It's just kind of our memory of that time, right? And I think a lot of things with movies and TV shows for me end up kind of being about that, you know, where you can think about what was going on in your life when you responded to something. So it has changed. And I think that's part of uh, the evolution of it. I think if it, if it didn't continue to change, I'd probably lose interest. So I don't know where it goes. Um, I know that there's some other episodes that just appear and that I kind of reach out to people and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Would you like to come and talk about this with me? And um, I think it will become uh, a mix of those things. You know, I think there's opportunities to talk to different types of people, to talk to people within the industry. And sometimes I feel like I should do that or even like I want to do that. Uh, and then other times I think just sort of reflexively, I want to stay out of the, what I always kind of jokingly call the podcast industrial complex, you know, and not talk to the same roster of people that everyone else talks to about the same things. Um, I guess if it works, quote unquote, and there are really no metrics for success in this medium for me, other than, am I proud of the episode? And does it kind of glimpse at something I hoped it would when I wanted to do it. Um, so that's part of it, kind of, where does it go? You know, what, what do we end up talking about? Um, what am I interested in and what are the other things that I'm moved by in movies and TV that I want to devote an episode to? But at the, at the same time, when you're making that program, you're, it's, it shows a truth that in media, of all forms, there's a sense of nostalgia with some things where with music, like I said, with film, with television shows, you'll have uh, like, if there was a program that you watched with the, your father or your mother or somebody, mm -hmm. you, if that program suddenly comes on the television and you're watching it, it might 
almost transport you back and remind you of those things back then. And it's, it's, I think it's a truth for everybody that you've got these uh, things in your life um, that, you know, that remind you of good times, should we say, which, which like that live at Pompeii uh, mm-hmm. episode proves, you know, for yourself with your friends. And, and when mm-hmm. you're talking about the Rockford files, you, you bring up occasionally memories of when you were watched that when you were younger mm-hmm. as well, because did, was mm-hmm. it watch, watching it with your dad or something? Um, hold sure. on, let me just turn this phone off here. Sorry. 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 Um, when, when that rang, I thought it was going to be uh, one of those na- one of those voices at the end of the Rockford Files recording. <laughs> that would have been perfect. I should have set that up. <laughs> yeah, the Rockford Files was was sort of an episode that I thought about for a long, long time because the the time in my life when it was kind of relevant to me was a couple of years after college and it was uh in retrospect it was kind of a pivotal moment that uh of course at the time i didn't really understand what was sort of in the balance but uh, you know the show was a comfort to me during that time and i kind of debated a lot about like how much i wanted to get into that in the episode and i think in the end i sort of decided to present it speak to it without really kind of wallowing in it, in other words, uh, because it was so personal. Um, But I think you're right. So many people have such visceral reactions to movies that we watched as kids or teenagers or adults. And those types of movies and those types of experiences to me are more important than whether that movie or TV show is quote unquote good or not. Right. Yes. A lot of times if you do a podcast, uh, like full cast and crew, you know, you, you inevitably are confronted with, do I like this or not? And there are things we've done episodes on that, you know, I wouldn't say are what my definition of a successful or good movie is per se, or that I was particularly moved by it or enjoyed it. There are movies that are so bad. We love them for that reason unto itself. And there are other ones that sort of mean things to us and to our guests outside and beyond any kind of subjective analysis of whether it's quote unquote good. So I'm less interested in that and in saying, you know, this thing sucks. I don't think that's a a worthwhile use of anybody's time. Um, But I'm more interested in both talking about things that I respond to and trying to find a way to do that. That isn't just about me, you know, that, that can, present it to people in some way that they too respond. Like I think you know, you keep mentioning the Pink Floyd episode night. The feedback from that was was so positive that I think it worked that whenever you're truthful about something and honest about something and people can hear that and they respond to it because they have their own version of that. You know, you probably have your version of of a movie like that. I think you know you're a big music fan. And so songs uh, songs from your teenage years. I mean, they have such resonance and importance and music particularly is designed to evoke an emotional response. That's what music is. And really that's what TV shows and movies are too. Um, so I, I like that. I like that link. I like those connections to those things. And 
you know, I also try not to lose sight of the fact that this is not a, you know, monumental work of art unto itself. It's, it's something that ultimately will probably be of interest only to, you know, a small group of people. But I think I've found and done enough episodes that the people that respond to it um, are a community of people that I really like kind of checking in with on Instagram and seeing their comments and seeing what they post about, you know, it's kind of like, there's a, there's a, there's a group of people that do like the podcast and then I like what they do as well. Um, And I think that's one of the things that the medium can do for people is it can help you find a little small group of your people in this otherwise pretty, you know, useless morass of social media. Right. Yeah. Facebook is kind of like you're there with all of the people that you're already friends with. Yeah, I've really found on Instagram with the podcast feed on Instagram that that's more introducing me to people that I don't know and probably will never meet. Uh, and that's been cool. That's been an unexpected, you know, benefit of the podcast. Absolutely. And, and going back to that point that you made about the audience that you have, I think, you know, I mean, there's a place for the big, should we say, production of you know the the joe rogans and all this sort of thing there's a place for that obviously but i think one of the good things about podcasting is the fact that it is you know uh, i remember somebody said on one of my previous shows is it something like um i can't remember but basically it's about that um as we pronounce it in the UK, niche i think some people mm-hmm. say it niche but it, it's that niche audience that, that are looking for that specific thing that they can't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think podcasting is best at, is finding those little small... Mm-hmm. It's almost like if you imagine um, the metaphor of you're walking along and you're just looking into these little caves for what you're specifically looking for or in a pigeonhole, mm-hmm. and, and you'll suddenly find one that suits you perfectly... And I think that's what podcasts do the best, personally. Yes, I agree with you. I have almost zero interest in any corporate mass-produced podcast. Yeah, for that reason, like I can I can get those people talking about stuff. I can watch them on TV. You know, maybe I consume some of that there, but I am absolutely not interested in that that tier of podcasting. It just doesn't really speak to me, except if it's someone, a filmmaker or an actor who I'm particularly interested in and they happen to be a guest on something. But I agree with you. Even when the biggest stars are on a podcast talking about things, it it just doesn't have the immediacy as a conversation that you can get in a really good niche podcast like you're talking about. You know, when people are doing something they're really into and doing it to entertain themselves and other like-minded people, that to me is what it's really, that's what the medium is about. You know, it's not about the top 1% of podcasts that garner 99% of all podcast listens. Um, But that said, I don't really listen to a lot of other podcasts, to be honest with you. You know, I listen to... Um, you know, maybe like the daily when the subject interests me from the New York times. Um, and I have a, uh, a sports radio show here in the States that, 
releases its radio show as podcast episodes every day. And that's a wormhole type show that has a whole world of references and video, I mean, audio drops that are specific to the show. And that sort of appeals to my uh, interest in things where you have to do the work uh, to quote my guest, Michael Chernus on our big Lebowski uh, episode. You know, I mean, I like things where you have to do the work. I like things that have a, a self-contained language and kind of body of knowledge that you have to acquire over time. So bands, TV shows, movies that, that lend themselves to that is what I'm interested in. Absolutely. So um, are there any favorite memories that you have from either television or film that, um, yeah, just any memories that, you know, just are like favorite memories, should we say? Yeah, I mean, I think, and, I, and I've probably mentioned this same set of them on the podcast over and over again, but there are, you know, there's the first time I remember seeing the movie Brazil, Terry Gilliam's Brazil yeah. at the York Square Cinema in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, when I would have been in high school. Um, I viscerally remember, you know, the experience not so much of watching the movie, to be honest with you, because I think it was so mind-blowing and immersive, but I very, very much remember the act of leaving the movie theater and kind of walking around the streets at night with that movie in my head. Um, I have that for a lot of movies like that, the movies where I was really moved by them. I, I remember the, the minute specifics of where I was and how it was the first time I saw it. That's a movie that I have that reaction to. Uh, 2001 is a movie I have watched probably more than most other movies in my life. Um, Blade Runner 2049 is a movie I saw five times in the theater when it came out and I remain blown away and interested in that movie to a very large degree. I just listened to a very long podcast uh, interviewing all of the audio department heads from Blade Runner 2049 which was really fascinating to listen to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I love that experience of going into a movie theater and, and having that dawning sensation that, wow, uh, this is something amazing. And this is, you know, that feeling that it feels like it was made just for you. It's so ticking all of the boxes. Yeah. Recently, you know, I had that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which is a movie that really just spoke to me on a cellular level. It's kind of about all the things I'm interested in, in the podcast, in a way it's about an era of Hollywood. It's about a collision of eras. It's about the myth and the, the reality of Hollywood and movies kind of coming into jarring uh, juxtaposition. You know, that was a movie I sat in and was so grateful that, you know, that came out pre-pandemic and I could have that experience. The Irishman uh, was the same thing. You know, just just moments of really being uh, blown away and in awe of, of the masterful use of the art form. Um, you know, I've, I haven't lost that appreciation and I'm, I remain open to the experience whenever it happens. On the TV show side, um, you know, I go in jags like i'll get into a show uh usually it's it's really as you've probably seen on my you know the instagram post for the 
podcast, like it's a lot of European shows, a lot of French TV shows. Uh, Gamora was something that really just blew me away all, all, all four or five seasons, I think, that I've been able to see. Uh, was an incredible TV series. The Bureau, the French television series, uh, those those shows really set the bar for me on a TV series. I don't really watch a lot of scripted television. I don't really watch anything on TV in the States. Um, and if I don't find something like that and I'm kind of not watching sports or something else, um, then I tend to go back to something like right now and just kind of involved in a rewatch of all of the Rockford files. And there's so many of them. I'm still only halfway through season two. I've been doing it for a couple of months. So I, I tend to watch that way. Well, there are shows like that where you just have to watch them again, aren't they? You know, that are just so um, perfect, should we say? I mean, I keep thinking of, um, but then again, I'm going on this nostalgic thing again here because I've not really seen it since when it was first shown. So, Will I be let down if I ever watched? Um, mm-hmm. st- would I be let, feel, feel let down if I watched Starsky and Nutch again, or would I love <laughs> it now as much as I did back then when I was eight or nine years old and watching it with my two older brothers? You know, <laughs> there's that yeah, there's that you know, side to it know, as well. It's true, Mark, but at the same time, I think that's part of it. It's like I, you know, there's episodes of The Rockford Files that are terrible, and I'm yep. watching them now, and I'm like, wow, this one didn't work. And then there's an episode that kind of comes out of left field and you're just blown away at how good it is for its era and, and the writing. And, but I don't think any of that takes away from it because I don't think anything is or is supposed to be great all the way through all the time. And I don't think that's what being a fan of something is. It's really about, uh, you can watch something on so many different levels, you know, and, um, and so I know that feeling that you're talking about, and there are things that I probably wouldn't rewatch because I'd be a little bit afraid of, of losing touch with the memory that's in my mind from watching it the first time. I think we can all think about movies that we sat through and we were blown away by at the time. And then if we kind of watch them 20 or 30 years later, maybe they would seem juvenile or unmoving um, and some of those memories you want to, you want to keep and preserve, you know, yeah. um, it's funny. I'm, I've been, you know, we have a nine-year-old daughter and she's on her third round of being obsessed with the Harry Potter books and the movies. And it's fascinating to watch her kind of navigate through the books, which she most recently listened to all on audiobook. Uh, which is something that you know didn't exist when I was growing up, yeah. and and that's a that's a certain experience of a book. Um, and then I had read all of them to her over a period of a couple of years when she was younger than she is now, and and then in watching the movies, which is one of the rare series that sort of managed to get it right uh, in the in the transformation from book to film series. You know the casting. It's still so impressive every time I have an opportunity to watch a bit of one of these movies with her, just how right they got it. Uh, that's so hard to do. It so rarely happens. There's so many examples of books that I loved growing up or love now that they turn into movies or TV shows and they just miss something. They miss the essence of it or they miss 
they miss capturing the characters. And there really is very little distance between the characters on the page in J.K. Rowling's books and the portrayals on screen. And they, they don't cancel each other out, you know, in some ways, sometimes it's like, once you see the movie, that's the only way you can see the character. This comes up a lot in like crime series because I'm a big fan of crime fiction. And when I've liked books in the Reacher series, for example, by Lee Child, uh, that's one thing. And then when you hear that Tom Cruise is being cast as Reacher, who in the books is a six foot five, 265 pound ex military mountain of a man, you know, you're aware that Tom Cruise does possess kind of this essential quality that Reacher has, even though he physically does not resemble him whatsoever. Uh, But, you know, those books I read for enjoyment when I like them and I'm not attached to that character. But for example, Michael Connelly's Bosch series of novels are books that I very much admire and like, and I actually haven't watched any of the series that they've made because I really like those novels a lot and I'm attached to the character in the novels and I can garner from the TV series that it's different. You know, it's, he went to a different war than Bosch did. And, you know, Bosch is a Vietnam war veteran in the books and in the TV series, because he's played by a younger actor. uh, He's a veteran of the Iraq Afghanistan war. And that's a small change, but when you really love a book and you love a character, that's a big change. The Rebus novels are books I've always loved, Ian Rankin's series. Yeah. And there's various iterations of those brought to screen, which I like and I will watch, but they don't get in the way of the character on the page for me. Yeah. Were you not, should I, I don't know if surprised is the right word for it, by the slight change to the story of One Shot for the first Reacher film? I wouldn't even remember what the slight change to the story was, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the film, uh, I think the film had some moments, but it just didn't really gel as a film, no. you know, in the way that it could have. So I, I think I watched this movie as more of a curiosity than something I expected to be the launching of a franchise, you know? Well, well in the book, you've got the, um, so the, the characters accused of, of the murder and um, initially in the book, Reacher actually believes that the person is guilty mm-hmm. of the actual crime. And it's only towards the end of the book that, uh, that there's a twist where he realises that the guy couldn't actually have done the murder or mm-hmm. committed the crime. Whereas in the film, Reacher believes from the very beginning that the person in question wasn't guilty of it. So in a sense, you've lost that sort of potential uh, twist, which works for a lot of good, a lot of good films have a really good twist in them. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, Hitchcock. So, you know, mm-hmm. he likes his, the, the, twi- the, the twist in films. Mm-hmm. So I, I just thought that because what one shot is possibly one of my favorite uh, Reacher books. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, I'll look over to my right now, and in my uh, current reading that I'm waiting to read, I have nine Lee Child books at the side of me. <laughs> nine that you're waiting to read? 
Yeah, yes, because because That's, I do wow. because I do nearly seventy hours a week, and I do this podcast. <laughs> and you've already mentioned they my pile listening. Up. He you puts know. them out pretty frequently too. Yeah, he does. You know, interesting. Yes. I um I had an occasion to work with Lee Child once on a TV show about okay. thirteen years ago. Well, he used to be a TV producer. He used to be a TV producer, and he is um, a UK national who's lived in the states for a number of years. And what was funny was the show that we were working on was crime writers crime fiction writers talking about true crime stories. It was, it was, it was a good show. It was kind of probably ahead of its time. It would probably do very well right now when true crime is such a big business at the time. This really wasn't, wasn't a thing, but what was fun about it was as a true, as a crime fan myself, I was able to get a few of the people uh, whose books I really liked to be part of the show, just as an excuse to be able to interview them and meet them and, and, and talk with them a little bit. And what was really funny to me was Lee Child is Reacher. Absolutely. And by that, I mean the qualities that, that Reacher has as a character, his intelligence, his sort of unerring belief in himself, his decisiveness. These are all qualities that like Lee Child, who physically does not resemble this badass, you know, ex-military cop character, but Lee Child like is that, and you. It was one of the first times I I had an occasion to understand a little bit about some authors uh, who have found a way to put their worldview into a character, and that's why the character is so indelible. Is that Lee Child's really just writing how he would think and react to situations he's not in, in a, on a you know he's not fighting off ten guys on a daily basis or ever. But his process, the way he is in something like a TV interview setting, uh, it has a lot of similarity to some of the the Reacher personality traits. And I thought, I've always thought that since then. I was like, that was so amazing to kind of be, uh, to be around him and see like, oh, he's just like that character. That's how he does that. Absolutely. I mean, I've I've heard um, uh, interviews with, with him. And I've thought that when I've when I've listened, I've thought that there is that he he's put he's put um, the personalities are mm-hmm. both the same. He's he's put mm-hmm. himself into the personality of Reacher. It's just uh, for want of a better word, is or better phrases, is just exaggerating slightly that character, shall we say? Yeah, he's taking things that he's interested in and a personality that he sort of possesses. Like he wasn't difficult, but he wasn't a pushover. He was he was prickly in a certain way that really reminded me of the character. And because mm-hmm. I had known of the books and had read the books before this this one day that I you know worked with him on this show, um, it wasn't off putting. And he was not. I don't mean to imply in any way that he was rude or. Or, or a difficult person, but it just was very striking at the time, like how how like his character he was, and and I've met and talked to other authors who aren't anything like these characters. But I think in the crime fiction world, particularly, I think it's more of a thing that sometimes these recurring characters really embody a lot of the qualities and interests. Because if you're Michael Connelly or you're Lee Child. Um, the fun of the books is in part 
that they get to go and figure out and learn how these things would occur in real life. And the research and the investigation, or an Elmore Leonard famously, you know, who employed a person to, to do a lot of this digging uh, to get the facts and the verisimilitude down. You know, that's why those authors wrote series over 20 or 30 years that continue to resonate because they do the work. Uh, and someone like an Elmore Leonard has such a specific tone and a sense of humor and an intelligence in the writing that we've talked to on the pod many times about Elmore Leonard movie adaptations and the ones that really work the best are the ones that managed to not just capture that, but kind of put it front and center, even as the filmmaker, a filmmaker like a Steven Soderbergh is making, is always gonna make a Steven Soderbergh film. But, you know, in Out of Sight, he made a movie very true to Elmore Leonard in a way that Elmore Leonard fans will appreciate and respond to. Absolutely. So I think that's that doesn't always happen when you're looking at turning a, a beloved series or a successful series of novels into a TV series or a movie. You know, I think it's probably very rare. It's very rare to begin with that any TV show or any movie ever comes together and turns out to be superlative at all. That already is incredibly rare. And I think it's even rarer that the right matchup of everything comes together to bring something that we love to the screen. I'll be interested to see this new Reacher adaptation where they have cast someone more physically right for the part. And I'll be curious because Tom Cruise did possess those Reacher-like qualities that really are the essence of the character. That's more important to the character than his size. But it will be interesting to see if the actor they've cast can manage to possess both. Because um, sometimes it takes them a couple efforts to get it right. Out, out of interest, you've mentioned Elmore Leonard. And uh, I'll just say in passing that Elmore Leonard wrote the book that my favorite Quentin Tarantino film is based on, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. Yes. That's my favorite Quentin Tarantino film as well. Um, and that's to me, has the same quality going for it that Out of Sight does with Soderbergh, which is that Tarantino gets the tone of Elmore Leonard, but it's first and foremost a Quentin Tarantino movie. It is. And those two things really work well together, it turns out. And much of what I love about things like Columbo and The Rockford Files are also in the DNA of things like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jackie Brown, um, films like that. So to me, Jackie Brown, which is in some ways like the least Tarantino of the Tarantino movies to date, mm -hmm. but to me is, it's kind of the purest and the best of his movies um, because it's paying homage to something that he really understands and loves. And the actors um, that he casts, you know, so perfectly bring bring those characters to life in a way that that's a that's a forever watch movie for me. You know, I, I would love to do that movie on the podcast sometimes. Absolutely, I, I think um, uh, in some ways it's almost like a pivotal moment in Tarantino's career in a sense because it's it's like you've got the before Jackie Brown and then the after Jackie Brown. It's like each I mean, it didn't completely change him from who he was in the films before as a filmmaker, but in a way there was a dip. 
it did sort of change slightly after that. I guess, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of like we were talking about before, you know, when you look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's such a personal movie for mm. Tarantino. It comes from his experiences as a child growing up on the outskirts of Hollywood, uh, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And I think that the personal nature of his connection to the story is what makes that movie so special and the ability being Quentin Tarantino to attract cast members like Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, who are doing really, really impressive acting work to serve all of the things that movie is about. And I don't think it's any coincidence that that's the type of Tarantino movie that I respond most to more so than something that is really disconnected from, um, from my day-to-day life. Uh, you know, some of the movies that he's made that just don't really land for me. Um, don't, don't contain that same level of minutia attention to detail that I love in a Jackie Brown or once upon a time of Hollywood, where he's really the best positioned filmmaker we have to talk about Hollywood in orbit of to itself, you know, and what are the various layers that surround what people think of when they think of Hollywood. You know, that's like something I love about the Rockford Files is it doesn't take place in the Hollywood of Los Angeles. It takes place in the real locations of Los Angeles that real people who live and work in Los Angeles frequent. It's not taking place in the glamorous side of it. And that's true of Jackie Brown. And that's true of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, you know, I think for Tarantino started out of this appreciation for, uh, I think it's Burt Reynolds and his longtime stuntman and the relationship that he saw that they had. And here's Burt Reynolds, who's the star. And then this stuntman who's in some ways doing the hard work of the movie and taking the, the beatings and the abuse is the guy who goes back and lives like Brad Pitt's character does, you know, in a trailer (laughs) somewhere less glamorous than where the star is living. And in, in that relationship, you have so much about, the whole construct of Hollywood and what it is. And that's, that's, I think what the brilliance of that movie is, is that it exists in that and it contains scenes. One of, one of my favorite scenes in once upon a time in Hollywood is when uh, the DiCaprio character has the Brad Pitt character over to his house to watch that uh, show that he was on, like the army show that he was on. And the, the, the joy of the, the conversation they're having about, how well done a stunt was on screen and then kind of making fun of another stuntman who didn't do something very well. And Brad Pitt giving Leo's character some props for a particular look to the camera. Like, I love that scene. I, I think that's such a, it's such a scene that, that speaks to just the, the soul of that movie. And sometimes Tarantino kind of, we hear him talk or you see his, his presentation of himself can be so kind of jarring and off-putting. It's hard to, wrap your arms around, but the movies themselves, and particularly that movie and Jackie Brown, you know, I just, I have so much appreciation for them. I love the the music, the soundtrack, like they're really movies that exist on so many, so many levels, the audio, the sound design, the, the color palette of everything. It's just, you could watch them over and over and over again, and they're never going to run out of things to show you. Absolutely. So how do you choose what subjects you end up talking about on your show then, the films and the television shows? Well, you know, sometimes, like I said, they come up 
out of something that I'm particularly thinking about or interested in at the moment. Sometimes they get forced upon me in the best sense of the word. You know, recently I had two hilarious comedians on, uh, Heather Thompson and Marianne Sirk, who for years have been bugging me to do Practical Magic, which is a movie I would otherwise never watch myself uh, because they love Practical Magic yeah. and it's such a huge and important film to them. And so, okay, I watched Practical Magic, which is one of those films that, you know, doesn't personally speak to me, but I understand why they love it. And it's fun to do a movie like that from time to time where someone is so forthright about, I want to do this movie. And I think if someone kind of, if someone forces their way in, in a good way, I, I think as a podcaster, you like that because it, it, it shows you that they're going to have something to say. And uh, I'm interested in that when that occurs. I like when people sort of are like, I want to come on the pod and I want to do this movie. I say, okay, let's do it. Um, you know, I've mentioned a lot of movies that I really love that I haven't done. And I think that's for a reason, you know, like I haven't done 2001. I haven't done Blade Runner 2049. Uh, we did do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, when Chris was involved. But, you know, those just would feel like such a massive undertaking to do justice to them. I'm not sure that I'll ever do those types of things. Yeah. Sometimes I go down a rabbit hole of a certain type of movie and then I find something that sort of feels like a bit of a gem uh, or that really, you know, speaks to me in a certain way. Sometimes it's just like people that I really like talking to that, you know, have good ideas. Um, my friend Rick Brown, who's come on a few times, has a lot to say about a lot of interesting films that I want to talk about too. Sometimes it's like having somebody like Lee Wilkoff on, which is really one of my favorite episodes we've ever done is such a treat because you're talking to someone who's got decades and decades of experience working in movies and TV and has such a unique perspective as a result of being kind of a day-to-day -day working actor that more than just getting funny anecdotes from them about, you know, stars they worked with, you're just, you're immersed in kind of how cool it is. Like it's show business and that's still like cool and fun. So, uh, you know, I just want to, I want to do things that are interesting to listen to first. I'm kind of agnostic about where that comes from or, or where, where I find that, you know, I'm not going to do it just to do it. So particularly now in the pandemic, you know, where it's a little bit different, you know, when we were in the office, we used to record the episodes in our office. Um, it was very rigorous weekly schedule. You know, we tape every Thursday and I think for the first year of the podcast, we, we didn't miss a week's release. Uh, and in the pandemic, it's been a little bit more hit or miss. But I think in that first year, it was important to kind of do that to build whatever audience we're able to have. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of what I'm interested in, who presents themselves as a uh, worthy guest, uh, and sometimes who sort of just fights their way in and says, hey, I want to come on and do this. Um, and, and to your point earlier, I think now there is a part of it where eventually I do want to talk to a lot of the people who uh, are important to me in my life, uh, friends, family, professional people, like it's enjoyable to use movies as a way to connect with people that you have appreciation for, but maybe you don't always, you know, find it 
uh, easy to let them know. You know, I think it's, it's, it's a great way to stay connected to people and to remind yourself and others of the connection you have to people. Um, and it's a lot of work, as you know, so I, that's why, that's why it's not something I just do lightly. You know, if you're going to put the time into preparing, watching, taking the notes, doing the digging, finding the clips, finding the right music cues, editing it all together, getting it up for the release, managing the day's post-release, you know, making sure that it's getting uh, at least in the hands of the people who have the potential to maybe get it a little bit of a broader audience who you might have referenced in a given episode. You know, as you know, that's a lot of work. And so it's only really worth it to do that if you're invested in what you're doing. Absolutely. There's a few points to pick up from what you've just said there, actually. And uh, one of those is, um, while you're talking there, I thought, when you do shows where you have got guests and you're doing films such as The Practical Magic, um, it reminds me that um, when I used to go to cinemas with friends, uh, or, or even now when I go to cinemas with people or to the cinema to watch films, um it's the shared experience sometimes that can can occasionally alter your perception of the film and it adds that different, uh, much like I said earlier on with the nostalgia, it's mm-hmm. got that sort of edge to it. And so if you see that film now, are you inspired by their uh, excitement about the film? Does it, does it change your, the way that you look at that film? Absolutely. I mean, I know going in, right, <laughs> without really knowing yet, and it's probably not a movie I'm going to love. Um, you know, I may be open to being wrong, but, you know, I'm going to, I'm going into that purposefully to celebrate Marianne and Heather's love for the movie. That's my goal. My goal is not to, and to have fun because I know that they are going to love the movie and they're going to press me for my opinion about the movie and that there's going to be comedy in the tension between the difference between those two approaches. Right. So with that episode, that's like, you know, I'd had Marianne on the pod before to do uh, dirty dancing, which was really funny. And, and another movie that she really responded to. And uh, Heather has been one of the people that I just, her social media feed during the pandemic has been consistently hilarious and moving and so funny. And so, you know, that's, that's an episode where it's a great excuse just to record something with the two of them. And I know it's going to be really funny and enjoyable. And when I'm watching that movie, you know, yeah, I'm watching it kind of like, what is this? How did this come to be? And, you know, I try to go down the, the rabbit hole of anything that I watch like that, that I'm not immediately grabbed by. But of course, once you start digging in, there's plenty of interesting things behind the movie itself and who directed it and what's going on and, um, you know, how jarring the tone shifts can be. There's like, all of a sudden there's this like domestic abuse section and this otherwise kind of, you know, playful movie about sisterhood and witchcraft and there's just a lot of jarring tone shifts that are kind of 
retroactively amusing and it's so 90s that um, I enjoy that too. So I approach that type of a movie very differently than a movie that I'm doing because I love it or um, or I have some connection to it. Do you think that in years to come, if you see that advertised on the television, it will remind you of that conversation and that recording that show? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it used to remind me that, oh, those guys really want to come on and do that movie. Now, if I saw it on TV, I would very pleasurably revisit it for a few moments and think about the conversation we had about that section. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what sort of research do you do prior to recording the show? And how do you actually arrange the guest that you have on the show? Well, on the research side, you know, it starts with a watch or a rewatch, right? That's always the starting point. I try as much as possible to have one, if it's a rewatch uh, or a first watch, I try just to have that first one just be a watch. I don't take notes. I don't stop down uh, during the watching of it. I, I try to just be, I try to experience it like a viewer first, you know, then if I'm doing it, I will watch it again and take notes and or my second or subsequent watch will involve the behind the scenes materials that might be available on a Blu-ray or a Criterion. So if there's a making of, if there's a commentary track, you know, my second watch or my third watch will be absorbing all that information. And then there's obviously the internet component, which is Googling available articles and anecdotal information about the making of. We make a lot of great use of IMDB and that's where the name of the podcast derives from because the full cast and crew page is a rabbit hole unto itself where you can be into, you know, a certain movie and then you're kind of like, well, what else did Bob Hoskins do? Let me go look at this part of his career. And then you're reading, you know, other kind of actors career highlights. And so there's a lot of that type of research. There's a lot of what's interesting about the making of the movie without that becoming too inside baseball for, for fans. Like uh, if that's a phrase, maybe you don't have that phrase in the UK, but in the States we say inside baseball, when something is really for insiders, it's not for, it's not for regular people. I never want to do that. I want to always try to bring forward the things that I think are interesting about the making of a movie. And if they are anecdotes, then they're just going to be great stories. Um, you know, great stories about the making of movies. I think that's a thing that I love very much about movies and TV shows. And so when you have an opportunity to collect those or talk about those, I think that's always really fun for people to listen to. Yeah. And I think finding clips, finding people talking about the movie in a way that is also interesting for the viewer and maybe tells them something about the movie that they wouldn't necessarily get just from watching the film itself. Um, so that research part, you know, can take, depends. If it's a film like Practical Magic, no offense, Heather and Mimi, I, I don't need to watch that more than once. And I, you know, <laughs> I don't really need to go much deeper than the Wikipedia page and the IMDb page, because those guys are going to do the heavy lifting of the fan part. Um, if it's something that, you know, I'm really into uh, network that I did with Rick Brown, you know, um, Bad News Bears that I did with Bernie Kaminsky. Like these episodes 
take a lot more time just because if you're going to do network, you know, you've got to do it justice and you have to, you have to, you have to cover all the territory and the ground that the movie covers. Uh, and it's a lot because it's, it's, it's a movie that does a lot. Um, so I, I would say that's kind of the, that's the starting point. And then with the guests, I really don't, um, I really don't get too much into like what we're going to do. You yeah. know, I really just, um, if they're coming on because they have selected the movie, then I know, you know, if it's Ted Jessup who's come on and is so entertaining and hilarious and does, is just a font of so many great Hollywood connective stories. Um, I know that I've got to be prepared. I got to do my homework to know what he's talking about. Uh, but I also know that, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna bring a lot of that content to, to the movie. Um, so the guest part, I try to just, I try to be prepared for them. And I've learned to try to stay out of their way, you know, and to, to make sure that you're hearing their voice as much as you can, um, which can be hard because I do uh, talk too much and I do get excited and have too many things to say. Um, so oftentimes in the editing, I'm trying to to repair some equilibrium to a conversation that maybe my enthusiasm uh, was overtaking, or, you know, maybe the guest uh, had a lot of things to say towards the tail end of an episode, but, you know, maybe didn't say as much in the beginning. And it's my job to kind of go back and make that more of a conversation than maybe it was in the recording. But as you'll know, in the editing, your job is really just taking out ums and ahs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how many hours do we spend doing that as podcast editors? My God. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And repeated words as well when you're trying to think of what to come up with next. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so people always say, like, wow, you made me sound so smart. I'm like, oh, no, no, you sounded that smart. And then to myself, I'm like, you sounded that smart because I took out every um that you that you said in that you know, hour and a half conversation. Yeah. And the four eyes that you came out with while you were trying to think of where you were going to go from the I, I, I. We, we could all use an editor. Trust me. You know, if in daily life we could have a podcast editor kind of following us around and sort of just cleaning up everything before it came out of our mouth, probably the world would be a better place. Sometimes we could do with people to do that, to, to stop us from coming out with things in the first place. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> oh, I mean, there are some definitely like cringeworthy you know, moments sometimes that you're, you're happy to save yourself and others from. And I do think that, you know, you have a, a responsibility to your guest to, you have to make them sound good. I think it's kind of a, a sacred responsibility. If you're doing a podcast, you have to protect the guest yeah, because you want a free flowing conversation. But a lot of times, you know, in a free flowing conversation, especially with people that are in the business uh, in one way or another, when you're listening back, you know, you're going, I probably should cut that out for your benefit. I'll give you a funny example. I had an actor come on and he told some amazing anecdotes about his, the intensity of his youthful auditioning process, including one time when he picked up and threw a chair across a room at an audition with a very influential casting director in New York. And it's a really funny story. And it's a story that he's telling against himself. He's like, look how crazy I was. Um, and when I was putting the episode together, of course, 
for the podcast, I was like, this is gold. This is an amazing story. But he's a working actor. He has a career. And I thought, you know, I, I probably should take this out because it's just not worth any potential blowback to him. And so I think I reached out to him and I said, hey, that, that's an amazing story, by the way, but I don't think I can use it. I think we should probably take it out. And he was like, yeah, you're probably right. Um, even though he was perfectly willing in the conversation to tell me all the gory details about it, I think that's your job is to make sure that you're not creating problems for people because not everyone, you know, has a podcast or goes on podcasts all the time. And you, you've got to respect that and you have to help the guest and help the podcast by editing them carefully. It's a sign of respect as well for the guest, you know, like... Mm-hmm. The most recent episode that I put out, which, like I've said to a couple of other people, is a twist on my usual. I've I've talked to a podcast listener as opposed to a podcaster. Mm-hmm. And I was saying to them that um, I always think it's a, a sign of respect that I listen to people's shows before I reach out to them or I try to. Mm-hmm. Um, because, because it's just respectful to do that, that you're... You're, you're basically doing the research and then I know what the show's about for, for mm-hmm. the most part up, up till then. So it's easier to approach somebody to talk to them as opposed to just blindly going up to them and saying, look, I know nothing about your show at all, but do you want to be a guest on mine? You know, and it's, <laughs> it's exactly, you know, well, there's for this, that's, that's probably, you just described probably what 95% of most podcasts are, unfortunately to me, you know, I mean, I think, yeah. There are people who make a virtue out of, hey, I'm going into this cold. I don't know anything. And that's part of how their conversational style uh, works for them. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's um, if it's an actor who's coming on, then I have to, you know, I have to feel like I have to do a lot of work to make sure I'm conversant in their career and that it can go wherever the conversation is going to go. You know, when, when Lee Wilkoff came on to do his first appearance where we really covered a lot of ground about what it was to be a working actor and the life of a working actor, you know, his career, he had so many credits on IMDb that you couldn't possibly watch all this stuff and, and be conversant in all of his roles, but you could find a good amount of clips yeah. online of great little character turns that he turned in on TV shows like heart to heart or Beverly Hills bunts or other great, you know, short lived American television efforts and i think it's your responsibility to watch and find as much of that stuff so that you just have that ability to reference and or kind of prod or nudge them in a given direction so i agree i think that's the you have to do the work you know and if you're not going to do the work there's no point in doing the episode which i think is why as i've gone on I release fewer episodes, which is partly pandemic related. It can be, you know, work related where if we're particularly busy, you know, I just don't have the time to devote to the research, the recording and the editing, uh, all of which I do myself, you know, aside from the audio mixing, which my incredible longtime audio partner, engineer, Matt, who in the Chris iteration of the podcast used to have a more frequent shout out and interjection, which I kind of now realize I miss. I want him to kind of do that again. I'm going to prompt him to do that some more on some forthcoming episodes because 
I always like hearing his his perspective. He's in a totally different state than than I am when we're recording. He's in uh, he's down south, and we're up we're up in the on the east coast. So, um, yeah, I forgot what I was talking about, but that's that happens too. But, but, uh, do you know what? Even I've forgotten that. <laughs> that means we're probably supposed to wrap it up, Marv. If we start oh, I forgetting. Know. I don't know. I, I was going to. I was going to actually say from something that you said earlier on as well. The, the, the rabbit holes. Um, I, I found that as well because I, um, I. I quite like the CSI shows or used mm-hmm. to, and mm-hmm. and then, you know, I'd, I'd sort of like watch programs or films, and I'd I'd sometimes think, oh, I wonder what this person has done or what this person has mm-hmm. done, and then the CSI to to the production. You know, you've got you've got William Fink who was behind uh, mm-hmm. who worked on Columbo. He's he's worked mm-hmm. on CSI and he's worked on Columbo and oh, what else has he worked on? He's worked on so many uh, procedural mm-hmm. police shows, and yet the, it's easy to get lost in those rabbit holes and to just think, oh, what's that person done? You, you can spend hours and hours, literally on imdb or other sites mm-hmm. looking all of these things up so i can yeah. i can see where you're coming from with with doing that i can see the fascination well i mean I think that's the you know the interesting thing is that if you if you're interested in a particular era of movies let's say like i like movies from the 70s yeah american movies from the 70s is a particular interest that i have once you start getting into that and you start really watching the important ones and then you get to the tier of uh you know maybe movies that aren't as well known but are as equally if not more influential and you you start to learn who the cinematographers are who the production designers are of a given era who the directors are and then also the actors because acting and supporting actors and lead actors like they have moments and decades that they are representative of and you start seeing them in a bunch of different movies once you start watching movies of an era and i've always been attracted to and love you know what we what we called growing up that guy you know that guy is the character actor that's in every movie whose name you probably don't know unless you're an obsessive uh, like like we were and and that's the the fun of that is in coming to understand that that's what a career really looks like. If you want to be an actor, that type of career is probably, if you're extremely lucky, what you could aspire to. It's not being Tom Cruise. You know, it's not being Brad Pitt. That's not really a realistic career for an actor. But a working actor who has 100, 200 IMDb credits across multiple decades on multiple TV shows and movies you know, they have if they have that, they have that because they fit into the ecosystem in a way, and they get along. Their ha- people are happy to be around them. They're reliable. They're dependent. They show up. They're prepared. You know, it's a job for most people in the industry. It's a job. It's not a lifestyle. And so I think the actors that I appreciate the most are the ones who put in that work and have that career because. It takes a lot to do that, a lot more than most people know. And yeah, it's easy work compared to people that do different things for a living. I get that. But at the same time, if we're in the context of just talking about movies in Hollywood or various film industries, 
that's what I'm in. I'm interested in longevity. I'm interested in people that figured it out, that made it work for themselves, that that carved out a specific character actor niche. Like that's so fun to kind of go down those rabbit holes and and see where it leads. Absolutely. I mean, uh, one one person who people might know that, that has a career that's sort of like that, but is a bit higher profile than that would be someone like uh, I was talking with uh, Martine Jean, who does the show uh, Film Bug. And she's mm-hmm. she does she does film production as well, and she's just started going into directing as well for the first time. And we were talking about one of her guests made a made a film, and one of the get co stars of it in a lesser role was uh, Tony Todd. Mm. And that that guy, I mean, mm-hmm. people a lot of people He's exactly know, the kind of guy. A lot of yeah. people know him by his name i mean most of these people you won't know by the name you'll go oh it's that guy there and i've seen him in this and you'll you'll do it all the time you'll watch a program and -hmm. you'll go i'm sure i've seen that person in something what have Mm -hmm. they been in that i've seen them in and tony todd is almost like is ultimate the right word to use but he's that sort of level where you'll see him you'll know his name but he has done so much work you go on to imdb and that mm-hmm. guy, his career is incredible. It really it is. is. I mean, it's that that that's a that's the career of you know one percent of the actors have a career like this. I yeah. think his career goes from about 1986 to the current day, and obviously along the way he's had many iconic film roles. Like we did Candyman, which is a great movie to do for the pod because such an interesting story about how they made it, and. Uh, such an iconic role for Tony Todd in Candyman. Um, Yeah. He's that guy, you know, he's, he's, he's a pro, he's a pros pro, but he's also a guy that if you do that episode and you put it on Twitter and you, you shout him out, he's going to reply, you know, he's going to, yes, absolutely. He's going to be, he's going to notice what you're doing and he's going to say, Hey, thank you. You know, and, and that has so much to do with the longevity, I think. I know I uh, I think I mentioned a Star Trek episode that he was in once. Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh, I, I don't know what, what your knowledge of Star Trek is. So the Deep Space Nine episode, The Visitor. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you know that one. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know it just on that alone, no. but, but I know that he, he did. Uh, he also he did Next Generation, too, didn't he? He did, yes, he did that as well. He's done a lot, and he's done. Wasn't he eight, worse? Was, wasn't he? Uh, wasn't Worf's he like brother. related to War? He was Worf's brother. Right? He was Worf's brother. <laughs> I yes. gotta watch that episode. I bet that's amazing. Absolutely, he, he comes back in Deep Space Nine as Worf's brother a few times as well. Oh, I love that. But love that. In another episode of uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, there's this episode where they have an accident on the the ship that they're on. And Cisco gets lost in time. And mm-hmm. his son, Jake, is growing up through time. And during all these different periods of time, as he's getting older, his father, Captain Cisco, keeps reappearing, but only for short points. And the older version of uh, Jake Cisco, the son, is played by uh, Tony Todd. Mm-hmm. And the performance that Tony Todd puts in there is one of those very few moments where it emotionally caught me and mm. it's it's just so heartfelt and mm-hmm. because 
at one point he knows that uh you know he knows that he's about to die that character that tony todd is playing the older version of jake and and he's dying because to do that i mean this gives away the story but to do that i mean of course you know not of course before going into the episode you know it's going to be okay because you've got all these seasons afterwards right so, right so he's going to die because for him to die it breaks that um that loop that they're on or that problem that they've had that's the cause of it is that they're continually linked to each other through time and mm-hmm. if he dies it stops this altogether but the emotion that he puts into that is incredible. So I posted about that episode being one of my favorite episodes mm. of Star Trek. And you're right. Tony Todd immediately responded to that and thanked me for posting mm-hmm. about it. And mm-hmm. there is that. Um, he's just a normal guy who will, re- who will respond to things. And he is a working actor that's just happens to be, you know, the candy man and all these other good roles <laughs> as well. But he's just a jobbing actor who's found really good roles now and then to play. Well, I think if you, you know, Tony Todd's a guy, I mean, you could, you could put him on Broadway in the, the highest quality, most, intellectual play that's about you know weighty thorny issues and he is at home there and has done that he can he's been in television probably for 40 years he's been in movies for the same he's he's just one of those guys that can do all of those things and i think you know i think we forget and one of the good one of the few good things about i'd say the internet or social media at least is what you're talking about which is you know if you're tony todd and you turn in that appearance on Deep Space Nine, um, yeah. you know it's you know he's doing so many other things, and it's easy to forget or overlook that he turned in some some real acting there that moved you and moved other people, right? Yeah, and it has value. And I think you can't forget that all of these people, anybody involved in any creative enterprise or any job, really, you know, likes to hear that someone responded to what they did. I mean, that's kind of a, most of the time as an actor, that's almost all you get, <laughs> you know, um, unless you're in the 1% of actors who make 99% of the money. So, you know, and particularly when people make movies and directors, I've always found them to be more, more open to talking about and being receptive to people who are talking about the effort that they put into those movies, because it's almost overwhelming when you think about auteur directors like a Denis Villeneuve or uh, a Fincher, you know, when we did Seven, yeah. Soderbergh, you know, Tarantino, all of these, all of these kind of auteur directors pay so much attention to so many little details that really most people watching the movie are never going to be aware of or pay attention to, but that has so much to do with why the movies work and are successful. It's that's the job is paying that kind of attention to everything and having a vision and being able to communicate that vision to various departments on a TV show or a film so that what you're looking for can be achieved because no one person does anything in any of these situations. You know, it's um, it's such a collective effort. When I was recently 
you know, listening to that podcast about the audio department on Blade Runner 2049, one of the things I was struck by is that they said that Denny Villeneuve never gave them like technical specific information. He always gave them his reaction as a viewer to what he was feeling, to what he heard or saw on the screen. And because he was giving them his emotional reaction, they were able to use their skill set to go solve what the problem was, as opposed to if he gave them a very highly technical answer, like, I think that the mids are too high in the scene and the bass needs to come down here. Then it's like, you know, as a, as a technical craftsperson, you're just going to go do that thing that the director said to do, which is very different than him saying, I think one of the anecdotes is like, he said he felt like he was in sort of a 90s TV show and it was kind of a funny moment, but the guy said, I knew exactly what he meant and I knew exactly how to go fix it where I yeah. wouldn't have if he gave me a highly technical answer. So I've always found that more people than, than not uh, react to and respond well when you point out that you recorded a podcast and talked about a piece of their work that you really appreciated. I mean, that's happened so many times in the life of the pod. And it's, it's always just a fun little aside when people you, whose work you admire and appreciate kind of chime back and say like, Hey, I see you. I thank you. You know, I, I, that's great. That's happened a lot. I, I always, I always enjoy that. Absolutely. Definitely. So you've already mentioned the next one, which was about recording and editing that was on the list. So the, the show music and the clips, um, how did you go about getting those? Again, it's just the, the, the show music, I think, came because as a production company, we have uh, we use various services that have production music. So I think that was just searching uh, the, Warner, the Warner Music Library that we contract with and finding, uh, finding a theme that sort of felt both jaunty, non-pretentious, uh, and had sort of this portent of something interesting is about to happen. So the theme kind of ended up really, really doing that. And, um, and, I, and I think it makes me happy whenever I hear it still, which I guess is a sign of it's a good theme. Yeah. You know, the cliffs uh, is one of the most fun parts and also one of the most time consuming and exhausting parts. So what I really enjoy is when I'm really engaged with an episode and I really want to layer it in with just the right references and just the right kind of moments to break up the conversation with just the right clip. I really enjoy finding that. Um, I enjoy less all of the work it takes to get it into the episode. Uh, although again, engineer Matt, does most of the heavy lifting in terms of making my bludgeon like edits sound good in the finished product. But, you know, I like finding the representative clip that tries to, because of course we're talking about movies or TV shows. So you're missing at least half of the equation and that you can't see the clip. You can only listen to it. So you have to find a clip that, you know, maybe requires people have some familiarity or do a little of the heavy lifting to figure out, what's going on, but you also have to make sure that you've set it up well enough in the conversation. So oftentimes 
in the early iteration of the show, we actually watched the clips in real time while recording and then went back and swapped in the clip in the edit so that we could have kind of real-time reaction to clips. But I think it just sort of turns out to, you know, Chris and myself just being kind of like, wow, that's amazing. You know, you don't really get much as opposed to if you don't play the clip in real time, people have to talk up, talk it into life and talk about their memory of what's great about the clip. And then when you then play the clip, I think it has a more kind of layered reaction for the listener because it's ticking little boxes that were set up by the anecdote maybe, or the memory. And then uh, the payoff is something that they're looking forward to. So there's a lot that goes into like the selection of just the right type of clip and the representative clip when it's a movie that has so much going on and you really want to help the person understand what was amazing. Actually, when we did, um, you know, one of my favorite movies, once upon a time in Hollywood, there were literally no clips available. Okay. The movie had just come out and the control was so tight that I don't, I think the only clip they made available for publicity was like the, the longish Kurt Russell clip uh, in the trailer. Um, and it just, that didn't speak to any of the stuff that I was interested in talking about with regard to the movie. So we had no clips. Um so I remember being really frustrated with that because, you know, all we could do is just talk about a movie that we couldn't really, we couldn't really hear anything from. Although I did think, I think we did cut in some conversation between Tarantino and the actors talking about the movie, but that was one where we didn't have the clips to play. Um, and I don't, to be honest with you, I don't, uh, I don't know how, I don't know if people like hearing all the clips or not. Um, I kind of, always just put in stuff that I want to hear that that is referenced or that I think is cool or that represents a little bit of a diversion. So um, I do that part to kind of amuse myself and to really end up making an episode that I think is representative of the movie that we're talking about or the genre uh, or the time period, you know, so that it can be a little bit of a, a little bit of a capsule. So that if you listen to this movie podcast episode, you're going to get a little more flavor from the movie itself, from people talking about the movie, and then maybe other things that were happening around the same time. Okay. So what other podcasts do you listen to then, Jason? Well, um, let me see. I will. This is like when they do in the New York Times, like what's on your reading table, and people always have these really impressive lists that you're like, come on, you don't really have those books on your reading table. You're just <laughs> trying to sound intelligent. Um, I'm going to look at my phone and I'm going to tell you what's really on there. So I mentioned this sports talk show that I listened to, uh, in the States, which is called the Jim Rome show. I listened to that very faithfully and I've done so for about 20 years. It's a very, it's a different type of sports talk show. And what Jim Rome does is very specific. It has, it's his fans are called clones because they're all kind of alike and there's an entire universe of references and sound drops that really only mean something if you've put in the work to follow this show for as many years as I have. I listen to that um, all the time. The daily I listen to if I'm interested in the topic, but I've become more annoyed by that lately than I have enlightened. So I tend to skip that. Um, it's Formula One season right now. I listen to Shift F1 which is a Formula One podcast that I appreciate 
the tone and the pitch of because it's it's not too technical or insidery. It's it feels like something I learned something from about a sport I'm only kind of you know I'm, I'm cursorily interested in the sport. I like to follow it a little bit, and I find that podcast helps me with that. Um, I listen to a movie podcast called the business from KCRW sometimes, um, which has interviews with industry people that are kind of inside baseball, but I enjoy that. Um, and I'm currently enjoying the Soundworks collection, which is where I listened to that Blade Runner 2049 episode, because, um, I think I have a particular appreciation for audio people, um, and listening to audio people talk about movies that they worked on is kind of its own thing. And, um, you know, when I get obsessive about a movie like Blade Runner 2049, I want to hear anything I can. Other than that, I really don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, if something comes up that I'm interested in, you know, if everyone's talking about something, I will check it out. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm probably like most people, it's like, I have the time that I put my, my, my ear pods in and I'll listen to something, but I don't listen to really any other movie podcasts. So, you know, my, my, the energy that I have for podcasts is if I'm, if I'm doing something and I'm listening to something, I have kind of these few that I'll cycle through. Uh, other than that, um, most of that time and energy would be spent actually putting an episode together to release. Okay. What advice would you give to people starting their own podcast? Make sure it sounds good and don't do it unless you think you have something to offer that, you know, again, not listening to a million podcasts. It's, it's both easy for me to say and hard for me to say, because um, I don't have any illusions that anybody listening to full cast and crew is getting anything there that they can't get in a million other TV and movie podcasts. You know, when we started doing it, as I said, it was kind of an exercise in like, let's learn how to do this. And Hey, I like movies and TV shows. Um, that's probably a good thing for us to do because we're a production company and we make that stuff, but we weren't thinking like, Oh, let's do something no one else is doing. Otherwise we wouldn't have chosen, you know, doing a movie podcast, obviously, because there's so many of those. Um, but I think the thing that I heard early on was you got to have good audio quality. You know, people don't want to listen to something that doesn't sound pleasing to their ear. And so taking the time to learn how to edit, or if you're going to use your own money to produce something, make sure, and there's numbers of ways you can do this affordably, um, have someone do an audio mix for you. Uh, it will make all the difference in the world for a business that's about one listener at a time. Like literally you're going to build your audience through one person at a time who finds your podcast and then is going to tell other people about it. You know, yep. uh, don't have ads. Don't be a part of the podcast industrial complex. Do it yourself. Interest yourself. Um, and have fun with it. Okay. So where can people find your show and get in touch with you? Well, they can find it wherever they get podcasts. 
Okay. Uh, Apple Podcasts or Google, Spotify, anywhere. Just search Full Cast and Crew Podcast and you'll find us. And if you find us, really follow the show on Instagram at Full Cast and Crew because that's really where the footprint of the show lives. That's where you can find posts from current obsessions or rabbit holes that I'm going down, whether they're, they're, whether they're episodes or not. And when we do have episodes released, that's where you'll hear about them and see other related content. And that's also where I post selected images from my extensive collection of 1970s and 1980s American TV Guide magazines. Yes, I've seen those. They are magnificent. <laughs> those are probably more popular than the podcast themselves. I should really do <laughs> an Instagram account totally devoted to archival TV Guide issues because that would probably be much more successful. You, you could actually do uh, do video footage, but instead of it just being video of you doing the show, you could have um, pictures of these um all the this memorabilia that you that you have yeah perhaps yeah i do post that like when i'm when i'm not watching something that's when i kind of get into the tv guide collection and i and i just look for really funny ads from the time you know, like there was a thing i posted yesterday that's like an ad for a don rickles comedy stand-up special that's so weird that's the strangest lineup of guest stars it just feels so 70s tv you know so i love looking through old tv guides uh, for that reason, I love the ads that are so strange and the cover art, you know, to your point, it's, it's kind of, you know, back in the day, kids, that's how you had to figure out what was on TV. You didn't have an on-screen guide. You had to literally subscribe to this little miniature magazine that came to your house and told you with some degree of reliability, what was going to be on when, and that's how you learned about shows. And that's how you that's how you learned when to tune in for the things that you wanted to follow. So I love going through those um, and posting that. And people seem to always get a kick out of the funny stuff that, that we find there. Absolutely. Anyway, thank you for speaking with me today, Jason. It's been lots of fun. Marv, thank you so much. You've always been uh, someone who noted and appreciated the podcast. And I want you to know that is noted and appreciated by all of us who do podcasts, um, it, it really, the only thing you really get out of doing this is when people notice what you're doing and respond positively. And it means so much when, when people take the time, not only to listen, which is one thing, but then to also take the time like you very religiously do and promote and, and post about the shows that you're enjoying and your fandom is really what podcasting is all about. Uh, so it's uh, it's a pleasure to participate in the meta exercise of being on a podcast, talking about a podcast. That appeals to me. So thank you, Marv. Thank you. That's that's appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. I look forward to listening. I mean, I don't look forward to listening because I hate listening to myself, but <laughs> uh, I'll look forward to seeing it come out. Whether or not I listen, I don't know. I'll see. See how I feel on any given day. <laughs> we shall see. Well, you won't know if I put that bit in that you asked to be put into the post credits. Otherwise. That's true. I'll have to listen just for that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, thank you, Marv. Anyway, thank you everybody for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us. And everybody follow Marv on Instagram too, because that's where you get all the good information about all the actually good podcasts. So I want to throw that plug out for you there too, Marv. Thank you. Thank you. I'll keep that in. <laughs>
<laughs> I keep forgetting to mention my own show and where to find. Yeah, mention your own show, Marv. Yeah. Get a self-promote here a little bit. I know it doesn't come naturally to all of us, but that's what you're here for. I'll do it for you. Thank you very much. Martin. Hello, Jason. Can you hear Hello. me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yep. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, making time for me today. Thank you for making time with me. Brilliant. Oh, you're, the, you're the hardest working man in podcasts. Only when I've got the time. And you're, <laughs> you're, you're a very hardworking man at uh, producing television and uh, yeah, all these other things. Try to. Well. Try to, yeah. That's all part of the uh, backstory here of how we ended up doing the podcast. So I'm sure we'll get into that. Yes. Yep. yep. We will but let's jump right in. Go ahead. Give me the interview. I, I love being on the other end of this because <laughs> I don't have to do any of the work and uh, no one ever asks me anything. So this is, this is like a real okay. first time enjoyable experience for me. Unless you're able to record your own end and then send that to me in case we have any problems. Uh, yeah, I think I am. I think I can do that. It says recording. I don't know if that's for me or you. On the Zoom, that says that's just for me on the Zoom. Yeah, or just for my um, Zoom, isn't it? Yeah. That way, if yeah. The, if there's any cutout, then at least you've got the clean um, signal then. Or the clean yeah, let recording. Let me see. Recording. Record a separate file for each participant. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's recording. Anyway. All oh, right, okay, because I'm also recording on Reaper at the same okay. time. You see, my but okay. That's all right. Yep, yep, it's fine. When uh, when I was doing the research, me and my other half were chatting, and she said, uh, "She says, oh, uh, Food Network is it? Is, is, is he the guy behind Re?" <laughs> <laughs> Alas, I cannot take credit for that. No. Alas, he cannot take credit for that. We did. Um... We did a Food, Net, Food Network series a few years ago called Dessert First, which was based on the concept that our chef always decided what she wanted to have for dessert first at a restaurant and okay. then ordered her meal around what she planned to have for dessert. That was the that was the high concept we came up with. Very okay. fun show to work on. We ate a lot of desserts. Lovely. Oh, I like dessert. Yeah, dessert first. They made that show. No, where the chef decides what dessert she wants and then everybody has to make that dessert. That sounds cool. Should have done. I, yeah. don't, I don't think I've got that. No. <laughs> There's a lot of shows that we get in, that we don't get in Food Network UK that you get on Food Network Probably, US. Yeah. It's a shame, really. You know, it's a whole other world. Well, in the streaming world of Discovery Plus, you probably can get everything yeah, now because that's changing. Diners yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, really yeah, we could, we could probably do with less diners, dive, drive-ins, and dives, mm -hmm. and more of these other things, maybe. <laughs> yeah, if you if you end up, I think I don't know. I think it's on in the UK, the streamer Discovery yep. Plus. I know they tested it there. It's on Discovery uh, Plus. A lot of our shows were on that. Um, yeah, yeah. But I'll mention all these, you know, and Jason will say no. 
<laughs> like, you know, like uh, Nancy's, is it farmhouse rules and things like that? No, I haven't heard no. of that. Although, I mean, I do watch a lot of UK programming on my own, uh, which, you know, I have to seek out through various means through Acorn TV or ordering DVDs or things of that nature, because, you know, that's a particular affinity that I have. Yeah, and a, a, a strange one recently is the change to Disney Plus for the UK, mm-hmm. because we have a have a separate of a service that's part of Disney Plus called Star. That's right. And yeah. that that has the um, the that has Fox, the cricket, doesn't it? That all has all the has all the pun. Cricket. I don't know about cricket. I don't know. But yeah, it, they, it, well, maybe. I was trying to watch. Um, I was trying to watch the England India test match a few weeks ago. Okay. And it was only streaming on Star as part of Disney Plus, which we don't have that here in the States. We have Disney Plus, but we couldn't I couldn't access Star. So yeah, this is the world we're entering into is so many confusing content outlets. And I think people like us who love to watch interesting things yeah. kind of have to become proficient at figuring out <laughs> where these things are, how to get them on our TV, how to reliably have them logged in so that, you know, if I want to watch something on Apple TV or Amazon prime or acorn TV or Netflix, you know, you got to go to different places for all these things. And that's the world we're living in now. So it's, it's a changing landscape for sure. There is, there is something called just watch. Do you, do you know that? Yes, I've seen that. I've used that to find where I can find things. And it's funny to me that in the world we're living in, it's not even easier than that. You know, like, um, it's kind of funny that for all the effort, all of these multinational entertainment conglomerates put into supposed strategy for streaming, that it's still relatively difficult to find where to watch something. (laughs) You know, they don't really have that part worked out efficiently. Um, and I'm, I don't know about you. Like I, uh, I end up buying a lot of things on DVD and Blu-ray, uh, and especially region free DVD and Blu-ray. And I guess, you know, I gather when I post these things, people sort of make fun of me because I guess not everyone is still buying DVDs or Blu-rays, but you know, there's many things. That's the only way I can watch something. It's just not available on streaming. So that's still a big, component of my watch history is DVDs and all of those extra features that come with the DVD. I still love that stuff. Um, I think somebody should, should start a business where they create a site that contains all the extras from Blu-ray DVDs that are unfortunately going largely unwatched in the streaming universe, because I haven't really seen those available for films that I know they're available on the Blu-ray or the Criterion, right? Like sometimes Criterion channel will give you some of the extras, but like not necessarily the commentary track or other things that I find can be where you learn a lot of the kind of stuff I'm interested in and that I talk about on the podcast. Yeah. I keep meaning to uh, watch the commentary for, um, I haven't seen the film personally. My, my other half, Louise has, she's seen, um, uh, Jerry Maguire, mm. and uh, that one, they have a fascinating commentary track on that, where as well as hearing them, 
you've got a box in the top, I think, top right-hand corner, and you can see them all sat together Love actually that. doing the commentary. That's brilliant. And that, I would want to see that. that is a fantastic idea, that, being able to watch them watching the film and responding to watching the film and doing the Absolutely. commentary. That is a now, really clever idea. I think that one of the things that it always occurs to me when you kind of get into movies and TV shows the way that I like to get into them and I like to hear about all the behind the scenes anecdotes and stories, like there's so much more going on behind the scenes in the making of anything than there is in the thing itself sometimes, yet there isn't really quite enough avenue to really talk about that unless you seek out kind of very specific podcasts that either have or feature or look for that type of information. You know I mean? And full cast and crew, we're not, we're not really conducting a lot of original interviews with people involved behind the scenes as much as we are, or I am trying to go and find interesting clips of people talking about the things I'm interested in and then cutting them into the episodes accordingly. Um, because that's kind of what floats my boat. You know, I want to hear that behind the scenes stuff. Like in the recent Rockford Files episode, we heard from Mike Post who composed that and so many other famous TV show themes. And I'd never even heard Mike Post talk before. No, I love that. I really you know, enjoyed that to hear that. him yeah. talk about that and how he came up with various ideas for the theme. And I love all that stuff. I hope we don't lose that in the streaming world because, you know, people are just watching the thing itself. And I guess that's where, you know, podcasts come in and people like yourself coming in who are such avid consumers of podcasts, like, uh, creating an audience that wants to hear that stuff is part of the reward, you know, since there's really no financial reward, the only reward as it should be is finding people like yourself that sort of say like, Hey, I, I like this. I like what you're doing. I enjoy listening to it. You know, it's a very personal thing to ask someone to give you 45 minutes or an hour of space between their ears or in their car. And you know, as you well know, probably better than anybody, um, probably the vast majority of things don't really make the cut, you know, that they're either not produced well enough or they just don't have an interesting enough angle or POV to make it worth your time because you're working, you're listening to podcasts, like you need to have, you need to be getting something out of it as a listener, right? It's got to be entertaining to you, um, which is something I try to think about as much as I can. Absolutely. I think we ought to go into the show now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's great. So uh, we'll, go, we'll go for it now then if you're comfortable. Yep. yep. I'm comfortable. Thank you. It's an orange juice, isn't it, darling? You've not put any vodka in there or anything. Thank no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody asked me that last night on the show. They said, because we, they would do their show with video and they said, are you drinking a screwdriver? And I said, no, it's orange <laughs> juice. <laughs> As far as you know. As far as I know. If it gets too light-hearted, then we'll know differently. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to quickly nip to the toilet, if that's okay, Jason. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> as long as you promise to leave that part in, Marv. Uh, okay, I will. Well, I've not, not left... the part of you going, not a part no. of you oh, actually no. going to no. the toilet, no. but just the... 
the suggestion that you're going to go, you know, as long as you don't clean that part out of the final product. It'll be in the post-credit sequence. Oh dear. (laughs) Back in a moment. Sorry. Okay. Mute that so that you can't hear me. Thank you for that. I'm back. <laughs> All right, let me just finish chewing here, Mark. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Good to go. Yep. Okay. So, okay, Mark. Um, is there anything that we uh, we need to pick up on, or do you think that we got everything? I think you got more than enough. Just, you know, when you edit, be kind. I think we've got a very good conversation going there. Very good. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too. I like it when people go off onto tangents and uh, and it just becomes a conversation and flows naturally. I Absolutely. Like yeah, there's no other reason to do it, really. No. But they're the, they're, the, they're the most fun moments. Well, it's been really fun, Mar. Like I said, I never get to do this. I never get to be on this side of it. So, uh, man, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for having me on. Thank you, Jason. I'll uh, catch you very soon. You take care. All right. You take Stay care, safe too. Stay safe, best, best to Louise as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. I'll let her know. <laughs> Everybody knows Louise. Everyone knows Louise. All right. Take care, Mark. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye.